Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Patricia Goodwin. Hi, I'm Dr. Trisha Prince. Hi, my name is Dr. Marjorie Mamsang. Hi, my name is Dr. Sheil Javeri. We are the PM&R Lady Docs, a group of four physical medicine and rehabilitation physicians who have created an educational and lifestyle podcast. Our first series is dedicated to PM&R board review. In our second series, we discuss quarantine life and how the pandemic has affected us individually. In our latest series, we interview physicians from different fields to discuss various topics of interest. Do you have any suggestions for us? We would love to hear from you after the show. Check us out on Instagram at pmnrladydocs or email us at pmnrladydocs at gmail.com. On today's podcast, we will be interviewing Dr. Jesse Hadkiss. Dr. Hadkiss is a highly experienced double board certified osteopathic pain management slash physical medicine and rehabilitation physician. After completing his medical school training at New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, Dr. Jesse Hadkiss continued his education and completed several postgraduate training programs, including a traditional rotating internship, a physical medicine and rehabilitation slash physiatry residency, and a pain medicine fellowship at Larkin Community Hospital slash Nova Southeastern University. He is also a highly involved member of the American Osteopathic College of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and has authored numerous journal articles and publications in pain management. Dr. Hadkiss is licensed to practice medicine in the states of Florida and Arizona. Dr. Hadkiss is exceptionally skilled in performing advanced minimally invasive spinal procedures. As a doctor of osteopathic medicine, Dr. Hadkiss believes in a whole body approach in treating painful and or debilitating conditions like PTSD. Dr. Hatkiss's role in the PTSD group is to perform the stellate ganglion block procedure, which is a fast and effective treatment option for those suffering from PTSD. So welcome to the podcast. Thank Dr. you for having me. So to start off, why did you choose PM&R? I think everybody that wants to go to medical school wants to help people. Um, I knew that I wanted to do that either in a capacity of utilizing myself for the musculoskeletal system or the nervous system. So, of course, that means I was either going to be an ortho doc or I was going to be a neurosurgeon. And once I quickly realized that each of those programs were at least five years for neurosurgery, seven years, and you'd have to be on call and you wouldn't have that much of a personal life, I started to kind of rethink my decision, but wanted to still kind of incorporate the musculoskeletal and the neurological aspects of patient care into that. So I actually um, heard about PM&R through a couple of the doctors of the AOC PM&R, and it just seemed like something that really was going to work for me, and I was going to be well-suited for the field. So just knowing that you could do this as an outpatient approach, um, that it's something where you could utilize your skills, you could incorporate um, you know, osteopathic manipulative medicine, you could do injections, you could see patients in clinic, um, you know, you could use ultrasound, you could do EMGs and nerve conduction studies, all these different sorts of things that kind of are amalgamated into one specialty, I thought was very special, um, in addition to being able to help people in both, you know, acute and chronic settings. So that really was sort of a, a driving setting for me to um, go into PM&R. With your whole mindset of why you went into PM&R specifically, then how did that lead you to wanting to do, I guess, pain management and then that path, kind of going down that path to trying to just starting to treat PTSD um, and then 
you know, does that involve you also treating other mental illnesses like anxiety or depression? Like how do you, how did, how did that kind of lead you down that path? Sure. So I was actually exposed to doing interventional procedures during my fourth year. I did a rotation in Dallas, Texas, and there was a doctor there that took me under his wing and showed me a fluoroscopy suite and had, I think, five procedures that he did from like a lumbar epidural to a sacroiliac joint injection. And I just thought that that was so cool that that's something that we could wind up getting into uh, when I had a little bit more experience. And that kind of always stuck with me. I had that in the back of my mind, but going through, you know, your intern year and the beginning of your um, PM&R residency, you kind of lose sight of all that because you're just trying to keep your head above water, you know, learning all the different uh, things you need to in regards to anatomy and medications and everything that, you know, PM&R incorporates. So it came back to me once I did another uh, rotation. I did a uh, month-long pain management rotation in South Florida, and I got to experience that again. And one of the doctors allowed me to do a procedure or two, and she said, you know, I normally don't say this to everybody, but it seems like you have a knack for this, like you're actually, you know, skilled to do this. You should consider doing it. So I said, all right, well, maybe I should. Maybe this this is kind of the, the branch that I should go into. So I studied more. I looked into it more. I did more courses, kind of got my hands on whatever procedure I could start doing. Kept studying, kept doing everything that way, kept meeting people, um, getting involved. And then, you know, of course, that led me to do a lot more rotations, many more rotations and a fellowship. So doing spinal procedures, you have to be cautious. You have to know your anatomy. Most of the time, it becomes very rote. You know kind of where you're trying to go. You know your pathways, that sort of thing. Um, So this opportunity wound up coming to me with PTSD because uh, there was a person that I actually used to work with back in Miami um, for when I left to Arizona. I kept, kept in touch with him. And he said that he actually wanted to start something with PTSD, and if I've ever heard of something called the stellate ganglion block, which I have because I've done for you know different conditions using the stellate ganglion block for years. And he asked me if I ever heard of its use in PTSD, and I said, yes, I have, but it's very, very infrequently used, and only a very few people in the whole world actually do it for PTSD. So his idea was basically to treat a few people right away, we had actually a, a family member of a friend of a mutual friend of both of ours uh, that was in a car accident that developed PTSD. He was our first patient, and we wound up actually treating three New York Fire Department veterans that served in um, in 9/11, and you know experienced PTSD uh, residually from that. Uh, one of them is actually um, you know was addicted to opioids. Um, another one uh, developed extreme anxiety and another one developed kind of a, a depression anxiety. So uh, to answer one of the questions that you asked me, uh, Trisha, it was basically that I think PTSD is definitely not separate from anxiety and depression. They're all kind of part of a continuum. And you do not need to have one extremely defining event to have quote unquote PTSD. It could be a buildup of many little micro traumas, so to speak. So, you know, I don't have an actual research basis behind what I'm about to say, but it's my personal you know, uh, opinion that I think most people that do have anxiety or depression 
might have had a bunch of little micro traumas uh, along the way that can maybe even be, you know, mini PTSD kind of triggers, so to speak. So I think it's kind of mental health is all one big spectrum when you're dealing with PTSD, anxiety, and depression all in one. And we've seen that because we've actually treated quite a few people that haven't formally been quote unquote diagnosed with PTSD, but have had depression or have had anxiety and the injections work for them. It's helped okay. and we have different you know, quality measures that we use, um, such as something called the PCL, which is the PTSD checklist. Um, we use the General Anxiety Disorder 7 or the GAD 7. Uh, there's a few of these different things that we use and we track outcomes that way. And you'll be surprised that a lot of people that weren't exactly diagnosed with PTSD scored very high on the PCL. And they said, oh my God, I didn't know that I actually even had PTSD until I, mm-hmm. I took this because they were pretty much just coming for anxiety or something where they, they felt a certain way and they looked at our website or they saw us on social media and said, mm, maybe this will help whatever part of my, my mental state, let me reach out to them. So mm-hmm. it's not just PTSD that's been diagnosed. It's really a lot of other mental health issues that, um, that come into play. There's, there's studies out there that even say that this block helps with schizophrenia and that it helps with bipolar disorder. We haven't treated that. You know, I haven't found extremely robust data supporting that specifically, but, you know, there's case studies that are out there. Oh, that's perfect, because that was actually going to be, like, my next thing. Like, does it, have you seen it work for those that might have, you know, bipolar diagnosis or, you know, schizophrenia, the type of thing? Right, there's... Um, but that's, it's it's a good jumping off point, though, because then you can kind of, I guess, do more research or more start more of, like, a case series type thing with uh, psychiatrists that are treating patients with these conditions and kind of see if it helps with their therapy and so on and so forth. I mean, it's a, it's a nice thought, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. It's... For some people, it's the only thing they need to do and they only need to do it once. And it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of other people, they'll either need to repeat it a few months down the road or a few years down the road. Um, and it's mm-hmm. actually better the second or the third time that you get it. It's a building block effect. Um, okay. But we always encourage people as well to continue with whatever you were doing before. You know, if you've been doing mm-hmm. mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy or yoga or meditation or you know medications continue that and kind of see where it goes so we don't tell people um to get off of their medications right away because as we know certain medications like benzodiazepines if you abruptly stop them could kill you Mm -hmm. so we don't encourage that but we say you know what whoever your prescribing physician is whether it's a um, psychiatrist or a primary care doctor whomever it may be consult with them. We want you to go back to them right away after and and kind of come up with a game plan as to how to perhaps wean off of certain medications. And then, of course, there's some patients that don't really listen to that and say, oh, I was taking, uh, you know, Klonopin two or three times a day. And I just stopped. And I felt like I didn't need it. And yeah, I went through a couple little withdrawals, but I was fine after. We absolutely don't encourage that. But that's kind of, it shows you the power of how well this thing works because they just don't feel like they need it. A lot of people will actually, to kind of shift gears a little bit in regards to addiction, about half, about 50% of patients that are diagnosed with PTSD actually have a substance abuse history secondary to that, meaning that they experience some sort of trauma and the way that they're quote unquote coping with that trauma is through alcohol, through marijuana, through cocaine, through whatever it may be. And 
very often we will treat these patients and they won't want to drink. They don't smoke pot anymore. They don't do all these sorts of things that previously they felt like they needed to just to kind of stay normal or to kind of forget where they were at currently. So when did you start the PTSD group? So this was something that was sort of a brainchild of ours uh, all the way back in 2018. Uh, But until we actually formally started seeing patients in a clinic and kind of did some of our background research and figured out some of the little details was uh, spring of 2019. Okay. And then your, the actual population of patients that you treat, um, have you noticed that most of them are veterans or women so, or male? or? So here's the shocking part. If you guys were to guess how many or what percentage of patients of ours do you think would be veterans? 50%? I'd, yeah, at least, at least be like 50 to 60. I would at guess least half, 30. right? Well, mm-hmm. I'll tell you that's inaccurate. It's actually much less because... And that's one of the things or one of the stigmas I wanted to talk about. Most mental health issues, especially PTSD, they actually don't come from become, being a veteran or you know, having some sort of physical trauma like wartime or something like that. It's typically people that have been raped, people that had an abusive relationship, people that are kind of everyday people like us that, that haven't served. That's the majority of people that are out there, but it's been so PTSD has been so kind of stigmatized to talking about veterans that kind of everyday normal people, civilians are forgotten about. So we make that an emphasis in our group. Um, So it's actually more like maybe 25 to 30% of the patients that we see do have a veteran background. And this is in no way to, to downplay uh, the veterans that are in there, but it's more of a way to kind of upplay the civilian population because there's so much that could cause PTSD in a civilian population that we kind of don't realize or forget about. That's very interesting. Um, a lot of people uh, with stress, I know, kind of carry their stress. They say they have that saying, you carry your stress on your shoulders. Um, out of curiosity, have you found a pattern of musculoskeletal conditions or musculoskeletal pain with patients with PTSD? Uh, the short answer to that is not exactly. I wouldn't say a pattern, but I would say that people that do have mental health conditions very much fall in line with having a higher percentage of chronic pain complaints. And, you know, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, right? Do we know whether it's you know, the musculoskeletal or neurologic issues that kind of cause some of these uh, mental health issues? Or is it maybe there were underlying mental health issues that then kind of predisposed to chronic pain? Very interesting. What other treatments have you found to work for PTSD? So not too many. And that's actually one of the reasons why I do emphasize what we do as part of PTSD group, because this is something that really is immediate you're going to feel a change typically within 30 seconds from when we put the injection in. We say five minutes, but really it's about immediate to 30 seconds that you're going to wind up feeling it. It's usually sustained. Now, if the PTSD is extremely high, there's a chance that it might only work for a few days and uh, a patient might need a touch-up and then it'll last longer. But this is quite honestly the only thing that I've seen that works quite immediately and is effective for the long term. And, you know, of course, people respond differently. Some people might say, oh, I 
rub some CBD ointment on and I feel great and that'll help. But what happens when that CBD wears off 10 hours later? You need to put it on again. Or, oh, you know, I did this cognitive behavioral therapy session and, you know, it's, it's working and it's helping, which is great. But there's a lot of time, there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of money that's put into that. And not everybody responds. The responder rate is nowhere near what the responder rate is for what PTSD group does. You could be on medications, right? We know that antidepressants, antipsychotics, um, anti-anxiety medications work, but they work for the short term and they basically become, you know, addictive or dependent on these medications just to become normal. So there's a lot of stuff out there, but I feel like it's not for the long term. And I feel like there's a lot of detrimental kind of side effects that come along with a lot of these other things as well. There's other therapies too, which pretty much um, place you right back into the trauma. And you kind of have to think about that. And there's different kind of coping mechanisms that are used from like a neuropsychological standpoint. But some people can't cope with doing it that way because they just can't relive that trauma. And there's a lot to it. With, With what we do, we basically comfort you. We lay you down on a table. We do a very quick little injection that takes me no more than a minute most of the time to perform and it's done with. And it really requires no effort on the patient's part other than showing up and being there. Right. And from my understanding, insurance doesn't cover this procedure. It does not for PTSD or any other mental health issues. It does for complex regional pain syndrome, which you guys all know about as physiatrists, uh, which has been around for over, you know, 100 years. We've known that uh, the stellate ganglion block works and, and helps. Um, to mediate that sympathetic nervous system and kind of shut off that fight or flight response. But it does so more for, for pain and to prevent the spread of that pain, um, you know, in regards to all the Budapest criteria and things that you guys have read about. But I do think it's something that maybe within time that'll happen, but it's going to take a long time for insurance to kind of catch on. Um, there's no such thing in this game as a double blind randomized control trial that really you know, we don't have any plans on doing such a study design because we're getting people in. We just want to treat them and get them better, um, get them back to the lives that they, they previously had, give them better relationships, give them, you know, job opportunities that maybe they weren't able to have before, make them feel good again. There's so many different aspects of this that really just improve with that. And I feel like it's unfair to, to really put somebody in a study design like that in these circumstances. Out of curiosity, Jesse, how much would one of these injections run a patient if insurance is not covering it? You know, for us, it basically costs $2,000 to do it. Now, something else that we've gotten a lot of questions on is what if we need a repeat injection, kind of that sort of thing. So what we do is basically I do kind of a traditional, quote unquote, normal stellate ganglion block. Now, if the person responds very quickly after that favorably we know it right away and we're done for the day that's all that we're doing that's all we need to do let's say that that person does not respond right away and it's been you know five minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes however long it is and they say you know maybe i feel a little better but i really just don't know we'll say you know what we're gonna do the second injection and this is something that not many people do this is sort of a trade secret so to speak but we do a second injection higher up than the normal location of the stellate ganglion block. Slightly different technique, something that I've worked on. And every person that we've done this on, except for one that I could think of right away, but there was a whole other slew of issues with that patient, it's worked on. And 
there's a big difference between that patient at the first time saying, you know, I'm not sure this worked or whatever, to the second time, they start crying. They start saying, oh my God, I feel amazing. Oh my God, the elephant is off my chest. And it's quite remarkable. So the second injection, we don't, you know, charge at all. That's part of the whole package deal. So it's something that really, if you look at it economically, if you want to break down the cost of it, $2,000 for something you might only need once is a heck of a lot cheaper than spending money on multiple medications or doing sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy or buying CBD or whatever else, you know, might be part of that. Because most of the stuff that we're talking about that treats PTSD is not free. It's just not. So if you if you look at it from that standpoint, maybe in the short term, $2,000 is a little expensive, but in the long term, it could help and it could just be that. And that might be the only thing you need. So when you say that you're with the second injection, when you say that you're going a little higher up, are you hitting just the, the sympathetic chain itself? Or are you more so aiming to hit another, I guess, node along the way? Or, you know, how does that... It's it's another specific part of the sympathetic chain. Okay, okay. And then how has your experience been with, with working with the patients with uh, PTSD? Do you feel like it's more of like a... I know it's like rewarding for you when you feel like they, they've done well, but do you feel like they come in more skeptical than anything, I guess, before it, they get the injection? You know, it depends. Um, I've had patients from from zero to a hundred in that regard. I've had patients that have watched uh, my videos more than I have because they're so studied. They're so into this stuff. And those typically tend to be the ones that say, you know what? I've researched everything. I've done everything else already. I have nothing to lose. Take your best shot, literally. And they'll usually respond pretty well because they understand what's happening. They understand the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response, all that. Um, and then I get other patients that really have done no research. They didn't read the website. Maybe their wife brought them or they had uh, a daughter that you know got them in to do it. And they say, you know what? I don't really know much about this, but like pretty much being forced to do it, whatever, I'm here, just do your thing. And I guess I'll hope for the best, but I'm doubtful. And then, you know, in both cases, we'll do it. And 99.9% of the time it works and they're super happy from it. Another misconception is that these patients need to be knocked out. They need to basically have, you know, heavy sedation in order to to do this. I think I've only maybe sedated two or three patients so far that really, really needed it. It's such a quick procedure. It's something that if you talk the patient through it, you develop a little bit of a rapport you know, you go over step by step with the patient what you're doing, what the expectations are. It's quite simple and they're quite happy to actually be awake and experience the difference from before the procedure and, and after. Do you feel like, you know, kind of going along that same lines with, you know, you're, you're seeing other people that have more underlying conditions that may not be, may they may not have been diagnosed with PTSD per se, um, but what about those that kind of fall in the category of, I guess, I guess fibromyalgia? Have you felt like, have you treated those patients with that? Do you, do you feel like it, it would help those patients? Is it an option for someone in that category, I guess? I know that I've treated patients with fibromyalgia, but typically, you know, as somewhat of a comorbidity with PTSD or anxiety. We, okay. we all know that there's a huge overlap of fibromyalgia and, and mental health issues as well. 
Um, but I haven't just done somebody that's straight up just had fibromyalgia, nor have I heard anything where that's been an effective treatment. Because really, if we want to go into physiology, right, what is fibromyalgia? We think it's a small fiber neuropathy, right? We don't mm-hmm. at least think that that's sympathetic mediated pain, right, which is sort of different. We're looking at other sorts of things that if we did an EMG study, um, we wouldn't see anything involved with the large 1A fibers, right? We wouldn't see anything mm-hmm. um, if you do, um, I, I can't think of the name of it, but basically the sympathetic response, you know, EMG that you could do as well. And I just think fibromyalgia has a long way to go before um, we could kind of get to the bottom of it and figure out how to effectively treat it. Gotcha. Um, so I don't know at how much capacity your clinic is open, but these days during these pandem- pandemic times, but have you noticed an increase in number of PTSD since this pandemic has started? Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think of all the different people that are affected by the coronavirus, it's everybody to some degree, right? So we, of course, as healthcare workers, think of the people that are on the front lines fighting this, seeing people die that are on ventilators. You know, those those people that are treating this definitely, definitely have some form of trauma or PTSD from, from being involved with that. But you have patients, right, that have maybe gone through this thinking that they're going to die, that luckily, you know, didn't and they're still alive, but maybe they have some sort of trauma from that. You have people that even are just maybe predisposed to, to making sort of a mountain out of a molehill with certain situations of having to stay at home that just get out of their routine or their rhythm and say that, um, you know, they, they develop extreme anxiety or extreme depression from not being able to do the things that they ordinarily do. Or how about all the people that were laid off or fired from their jobs and they're thinking, oh my God, how am I going to, you know, stay in my home? How am I going to feed my family? I mean, we're all lucky. We're all employed, but there are many people out there that aren't. And I really couldn't imagine being in that situation. There's so much economic strife that's occurring right now um, as part of really everybody's lives, unless you're lucky enough to be you know, a billionaire at this point. Um, we just don't know. I mean, there's, there's major airlines right now that are thinking of shutting down. There's you know, all sorts of companies that we thought were extremely robust that, that aren't. I think everyone to a degree is affected. Um, our clinic, to kind of answer the first part of your question, has been shut down for the past few months because, you know, in the states of Arizona and Florida, they did kind of shut down the quote-unquote elective procedures for at least a month. Um, but also, we have people that come from all over the place that, that do this. It's not just Miamians or Phoenicians that come. It's people that we've had from California. We have people from you know, Manitoba, from Saskatchewan, people from the islands that'll come. How are they going to get there? How are they going to really do this? Or even if they can, there's that fear of flying or that fear of being involved with being exposed to coronavirus by being in an airport or being, you know, in an Uber or public transportation system. So there's a lot of difficulty in people even wanting to come at this point. So now the doors are kind of starting to open, especially in Florida and Arizona to where, you know, the cases have been kind of decreasing there's sort of a quote unquote herd immunity that's been developing in these states. They're opening up um, all these different facilities now. So I feel like the environment's a little less tense, but it's going to take some time in order for people to kind of come to terms with it. We are open. We are going to be seeing patients 
starting the beginning of June. We're going to have to see how that, that involves. I, I anticipate maybe the beginning of June not being super duper hectic just because of the things I just mentioned. But I do feel like as the weeks progress, we're going to be hit very hard in a good way. We're going to have a lot of people that we could treat. You basically answered all my follow-up questions. Oh, good. <laughs> I was, I was going to ask, <laughs> I was going to ask you if it was, if you would see more people from PTSD due to direct COVID-19 losses, loss of family members, or if it was from the other hardships that come with this, because it does affect everyone like loss of a job um, or anything else being stuck at home. Um, so you did answer that as well. Um, and then how it will affect your practice afterwards. So it's, it sounds like it's going to be very busy when you finally reopen. Yeah, it should be. Un- unfortunately, I mean, it's good good for us because we'll be able to treat people. But then again, you know, we, we hate seeing people suffering from this. But at least we do have a, a very good solution. And then just to reiterate, where are your offices located again? So just we have in an office. Off- someone listening wants to be evaluated. Absolutely. We have office locations both in Miami, Florida and Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Specifically, we are located in uh, the Brickell district of Miami. And we are also located currently in Tempe, Arizona, where uh, Arizona State University is located. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast and answer all our questions. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm happy you guys started this podcast. I think it's something that is needed within our world of physiatry. I think it's also beneficial for patients and their families, anyone who might be listening, who says, oh man, this person I know might be able to benefit from something like this. I know that our podcast is not medical advice, but it at least might prompt someone to seek out a physiatrist in the future um, for their loved one who had a stroke or a brain injury or any other, or even PTSD. Absolutely. Uh, The only thing I would add, I guess, is if anybody did want to look further into what it is exactly that I do, I could provide that information. So uh, basically, if you go on the World Wide Web, we are at www.ptsdgroup.com. That has a plethora of information from videos to patient stories to information on the science behind the actual injection that we do. Pretty much everything, anything um, you could find on there. Uh, We are also on Instagram, PTSD group on there. My personal Instagram account is the real Dr. Jesse, DR as doctor, the real Dr. Jesse. And if anybody ever has um, any questions or issues, please feel free to call or you could even direct message me on, on Instagram. That's awesome. Thank you for that, Jesse. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah. These views are our own and not those of our employer. Pima and Our Lady Docs makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. While the information contained within the podcast is believed to be accurate at the time of the recording, no guarantee is given that the information provided in this podcast is correct, complete, and or up to date. The materials contained on this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute medical or other professional advice on any subject matter. All information, content, and material of this podcast is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. If you're having a medical emergency, stop this podcast and call 911.